The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. Coming up this week we talk to Richard Parry, the new director of the Glasgow International Festival for Contemporary Art, and to the Ethiopian ambassador in London about the fate of the Magdala treasures in British museums. But first, the Sony World Photography Awards, now in their 11th year, were announced on Thursday night, and the Art Newspaper's chief contributing editor, Gareth Harris, was among the judges. Gareth is with me to talk about the winners and the experience of judging the awards. Gareth, I wonder if we could begin by just explaining to listeners what the Sony World Photography Awards are. The awards are organised by the World Photography Organisation, and last year they invited me to be a judge. Um... They say it's the world's most diverse photography competition. It recognises the best contemporary photography from the last year. And some of the statistics are quite staggering. It's now in its 11th year. I think the 2018 edition attracted 320,000 entries from 201 countries. Uh, Anyone can enter via the website, worldphoto.org. So it's it's a very democratic process. Um, I was one of seven judges, I believe. The competition is split across 10 categories or so, ranging from portraiture to still life to current affairs. Uh, We judge the 10 categories. And then uh, uh, the chair of the judges, uh, Mike Trow, he's the picture editor at Vogue UK. He selected an overall winner um, and the winners were announced last night at at an award ceremony in London. So... You say there's 320,000 entries. Tell me about that. To what extent are professional photographers invited or are they, do they enter in exactly the same way as everybody else? As far as I'm aware, they, they, they um, participate in exactly the same way as everybody else. Everyone enters. Uh, we, we judge anonymously, um, so we don't know who's, who's entered or you know, what, what standard they're at. And I think that makes for quite an intriguing journey as such, you know, in terms of judging and discussing. Uh, Yes, and so the World Photography Organization whittles down the entries. Um, We saw the shortlisted people. Um, There are about 10 photographers in each category. So in January, we we looked at, I think it was close to almost 1,000 photographs, which is quite a, you know, it it was quite an experience for me personally. I'm not a photography specialist. So looking at those and judging what was appropriate and what should be rejected was an eye opener. So tell me, so okay, so looking at a thousand image, images over how long? Two days. Right. So we did five categories on the one day, five categories the next. Um, you know there are challenges. I had to stay, try to stay alert most of the time. <laughs> uh, and it, it, as I said, for me it was it was a it was a new experience. You know, I'm I'm more used to looking at contemporary art or classic art. So judging the differences, evaluating the differences was, uh, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, I did a lot of research before I became a judge. I, I sort of read read up a lot. I, I looked at, I, I like certain curators of photography. There's a guy called Martin Barnes, who's senior curator of photographs at the Victorian Albert Museum. And he said in The Guardian, you know, great photographs are like visual poetry. They neatly capture and express a situ- situation or emotion that transcends the everyday. So I went in all guns blazing. Um, And then the World Photography Organization gave quite specific advice as well. You know, they said the quality of the images had to shine through and that strong narratives should take second place. So I find that quite interesting. You know, as as we continue to judge, for me, the most important thing was how these different images hung together as a body of work. You know, we saw four or five images 
from each shortlisted photographer. So sometimes, you know, for me, it was hard. Images can be visually very arresting, can't they? Obviously, something has to grab you straight away, I suppose, and leave an impression. But then in my mind, I was wondering, how do you separate that from the story or the narrative? So it, it, it was very much a yeah, I mean, as I said, it took me a while to adjust and get used to different things. And there were disagreements between us in certain categories. So That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things I'm really struck by when I see the show that takes place at Somerset House and then often tours the world, I'm not sure whether if there are touring dates this year. Um, I think those are to be confirmed. But certainly in, in the shows at Somerset House... Um, is that you are sort of confronted with something like a sort of blizzard of images, which is actually quite like the, the experience you're describing. If you're seeing a thousand images over two days, you see something like that in the show, don't you? So there's a, there's a vast number of images that often presented quite um, in quite similar ways, similar framing and all that kind of thing. So on the one hand, that makes it a democratic process, but it also makes... Um, the process of separating individual images and spending time with those images quite difficult. It is. I, I agree. And I think it's easy to become, uh, it's quite a strong word, but almost desensitised to what you're seeing. So you have to remain, as I said, you know, visually, visually alert. And you want to do justice to these different photographers, the shortlisted photographers. You know, they have worked very hard. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, perhaps it's all about how we view and see imagery and how you confront a blizzard. I think that's a very good description. Also, something that you pointed out there that that struck a chord with me is that how can you separate out a a narrative from an image? It's very difficult to do that in terms of, especially when you're talking about current affairs photography, for instance. And and, and, and every year I'm really mindful of this when I see the exhibition, that... um, you are often dealing with issues that you care passionately about and therefore the investment that you have in that image the first time you see it is is immediate and 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 to separate out your sort of critical faculties from that is also a very difficult process it is isn't it i suppose it's that question also of context you know um there's a there was a, a category or there is a category called current affairs and news you know and the winner is a, a Malaysian photographer called Maud Samuel Maud Said. And uh, this photographer focused on the, the refugee camps um, in uh, Bangladesh, you know, the, the crisis around Myanmar. And, you know, these are actually astounding images. And, and this photographer is a very worthy winner. But as you say, how do you separate the emotion? And you have to, how aware are you of the context as well? There was also an inter- interesting debate around the still life category. Uh, which was won by a photographer called Edgar Martins. He visited a, a, an institute in, in Portugal and he photographed suicide letters, which are quite stunning to look at. They look like uh, sort of thin blades of, of white paper, you know, when, when you see the images. And, and they stand out as kind of abstract forms as such. But then if you know the context that these are, I think they're suicide letters from over the centuries... That does change your perception of things, doesn't it? And I think we were told at the time they were suicide notes. And that made a real impression on me. And I think that possibly nudged me towards giving it a more favourable assessment. I thought that, you know, I thought that context was so mesmerising in a way. Tell me about the the winner of the overall prize this year. Uh, The winner of the overall prize is called Alice Tomlinson. She's a British photographer. She has been photographing people, objects, relics at Catholic and Christian pilgrimage sites across Ireland, Poland and France. Um, 
she, I mean, she, she's, she gives a fascinating outline to, 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 the, to her images. She, she said she first went to Lourdes five years ago on a kind of pilgrim package tour, which really, I mean, that, that made me laugh a bit. One of the interesting things about her work, I thought, was that there is a sort of conceptual edge. And again, this is an area that the prize sort of strays into here and there. Sometimes it's quite straight photography, a lot, especially a lot of the public fo- photographs are, um, or the amateur photographs are, kind of what you would traditionally argue was, a fo- was photography, whereas some of the professionals veer into conceptual territory. So, for instance... With Alice's work, you've, she separates out the different elements of the project, so it becomes like a kind of conceptual pro- project. So the, there are the ex voto um, objects which she photographs in, in very great detail. She also photographs the spaces that, that, that the, um, the pilgrimage take place in. And then, of course, there's the people that do it. So, so she's separating out object, landscape and people, isn't she? So it's, as I say, there's a, um, there's a framework that she surrounds her project with. Yeah, you're right. I think she's very specific. It does veer into different territories. And you describe very well how she separates people, places and things. You know, I think she she photographs prayer notes hidden in rocks, crosses etched into stone, ribbons wrapped around twigs. And then she photographs the personalities at these pilgrim sites. So, yeah, I guess you could say it's conceptual and much more personal or much more emotional. I think that's why she's a she, she won overall as well, you know, she could cross genres and mix emotions and do all sorts of things. I've been on a panel for a very different endeavour in, entirely, which is the London Open at the Whitechapel Gallery in London. Um, in that, we don't choose winners, but we select artists to take part in a show. And... One of the interesting aspects of that was that we were judging everything on a screen, you know, which was whittled down from a large number of artists again. And uh, the media was very varied. And so, therefore, that that posed a certain problem uh, in terms of scale and all those kind of things. Were you sort of grateful that at least you were sort of looking at images which were all broadly in the same medium and therefore you could have... uh, you, you could sort of be confident that there was a sort of balance about the decisions that you were making. Yeah, I think I think that's a very good point. I think there's there's two things to say there. Um, I think we were told at the beginning of the process to be very conscious of how the images would look on the wall and how we would envisage them in, at the exhibition at Somerset House. So I had to take that on board much more and that did change how I approached some of the works. And I, I, I've seen the exhibition at Somerset House and I, I can see that most of these images do do look good in an exhibition setting. And the second point um, also is coming back to that thing about the differences or uh, between fine and contemporary art and photography. I did sort of before before becoming a judge, perhaps I, I thought that photography could not be as nuanced as contemporary art or fine art. And I, I did change my mind, you know. We saw so many images, people take so many different approaches. And perhaps photography can be nuanced and balanced. And I saw so many different things that convinced me of that. Indeed. I mean, we should never assume, should we, that, that photography is just about images because the actual physical specimens that you confront in the gallery that are actually tremendously important what they what scale they are the the kind of paper that's used the kind of printing methods and all those kind of things obviously you don't have that in the judging process but you do get it when you get to the into the rooms at the at the end and see the exhibition has anything sort of surprised you by the impact that they've had on you since 
you judge them as a flat image and and what they look like in the space? Um, in retrospect, I suppose certain photographers have seeped into my mind still. And to me, there's always the question of how staged a photograph is, you know, and what came across with some of the works is how wonderfully naturalistic you can be with photography. The 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 winner of the portraiture section is a guy called Tom Oldham, and he photographed a series of uh, regular customers at the Palm Tree Pub in East London, <clears throat> and they are fantastic works. You know, they these people look so dignified and um, vibrant, and yet he has kept his distance. I can see that a photographer can. Lurk in the shadows. Perhaps that doesn't sound too good, but anyway, <laughs> he can he can keep the appropriate distance and yet reveal and portray humans in the most astounding and original ways. Gareth, thank you so much for talking to us about it. Thanks. The Sony World Photography Awards exhibition is at Somerset House until the 6th of May. For details of its touring venues, please go to worldphoto.org. Now, there's been a lot of discussion recently about Ethiopian treasures seized at the Battle of Magdala in 1868 and since housed in British museums. The Victorian Albert Museum has offered to return the treasures on a long-term loan to Ethiopia. And as we recently reported in a story at theartnewspaper.com, the Ethiopian government has since called upon the British Museum and others to follow the V&A's lead. Martin Bailey, who wrote that story, went to the Ethiopian embassy to talk to the ambassador, Haile Mikhail Abera Afewerk, about this subject. Your Excellency, uh, Mr. Afferwerk, uh, we're very grateful that you've offered to discuss the future of objects which were looted by British troops at the Battle of Magdala in 1868 and brought back to the UK. Uh, the three main collections here in Britain are now at the Victoria and Albert Museum, the British Museum and the British Library. Now, let's start by talking about the V&A. Uh, they've just recently opened a display with around 20 objects which uh, were looted in Magdala. And it's the first time they've been brought together, I think, in living memory. Now, I wanted to ask, what were your emotions when you came and saw the display for the first time and you suddenly saw a group of objects which had been seized from the imperial treasury and from Christian churches after the suicide of the emperor? How did you feel? Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, as an Ethiopian, um, I should tell you that the whole country, all Ethiopians, attach very great importance to their cultural heritage, uh, religious uh, objects, uh, artifacts, and and I mean the whole the whole country, Ethiopia, is a museum of of its cultural heritage in all corners of the country, and therefore that when when you see something that was um, hidden away locked in a room uh, being displayed um, that in itself is I think um, something we, 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 we need to uh, appreciate and thank the VNA for doing this because they were as I said locked in a room for a long time. Could I ask what sort of contacts you had with the VNA's director Tristram Hunt uh, and were you consulted about the display and what advice uh, did you give? The display itself was not an objective on our side. Our objective is to keep the demand for the return of the cultural uh, artifacts and religious objects um, 
at at uh, at the VNA and and other museums, but they did consult with us uh, about the display of of the objects, the artifacts. As I said, was a good thing, uh, given the fact that they were hidden away in the room for for for, for many years. Fine. Well, we'll come on to the important question of the return in a moment. But you are saying then that you welcomed uh, the V&A's display, although it was not your primary goal. Um, is, is that essentially correct? The, the fact that they were hidden away is not a good thing because, I mean, people can't, can't, can't really see where they are. But now that they are displayed, the Ethiopian, Ethiopians in diaspora and the British public at large would be able to see that there is such a thing, you know, um, as you said, brought from Magdala during the Magdala expedition, and therefore that people would be aware that they are here, and therefore that they should be returned to their rightful owners. Fine. So it's a, it's a step forward in that it's acknowledging uh, more publicly the existence of these objects, and we therefore have to think about what will happen next. Now, the V&A director, Tristram Hunt, has offered to return the objects, but on long-term loan, not to restitute them in terms of ownership. Um, that is actually a step forward, I believe, because um, I don't think that offer has been made before. Uh, how do you regard that offer? Uh, and is it something that your government is interested in pursuing or not? Allow me to quote here what uh, the former Ethiopian patriarch said about things like loan and things. He said, give it a name, whatever name you want to give it. The important thing that is that the artifacts and religious objects are back in Ethiopia, returned to Ethiopia. And that's the main objective. And the goal is this. And therefore, that it's this we, we need to look at, we need to consider and to keep alive, you know, demanding the, the return of, of these artifacts, as I said, they mean quite a lot to Ethiopians. It's their history, it's their culture, and I think the, the important thing is that they are returned. Sure. Uh, let's go into the question of how they would be returned, and it is two separate ways of doing it. One is a long-term loan, um, the other is permanent restitution. I'm not quite clear what your position is on a long-term loan. Is it something that your government would like to ask for as an interim step? Or are you not um, interested in the loan? The answer, the answer is a quick no. My government is not interested in loans. My government is interested in having those uh, objects back home returned because that's the right thing to do. And has that message been passed on by you to the VNA and its director, Tristram Hunt? In my speech, I said the eventual return of the artifacts and other uh, objects you know, in other museums as well. I underline the return yeah. of the objects. Um, f fine. Um, so it, it is clear that you are then uh, seeking the uh, permanent return of the objects. That's now, what will happen next? Because the loan offer is on the table and you're quite entitled to say that's not what you want. Uh, but is there not then a stalemate? Um, I have believed, I've always believed that times change. Yes. And so do attitudes. Yes. Down the road, as you can see also, there's quite a lot of interest 
in the return of such objects and uh, religious objects and artifacts back to Ethiopia, many people in Britain, the public at large, media, yes. higher education, um, you know, people interested in culture, they are all sympathetic towards uh, Ethiopia's demand for the return of these objects. And therefore that, as I said, attitudes do change. And I hope that people will understand, government will understand, the institutions here will understand and, uh, and accept this uh, demand by Ethiopia for the objects to be returned. Um, if they went back to Ethiopia, what would be the most suitable or appropriate place or museum to display them? I know of quite a number of museums, modern museums built. The National Museum in Addis Ababa, in Aksum, the uh, seat of uh, ancient civilization in Ethiopia, the introduction of, of Christianity to Ethiopia in 330, in Gondar, in Lalibela, uh, Harar, and there's quite a number of museums, modern museums. Universities have been giving courses, uh, programs in cultural heritage management. And uh, the, the Ethiopian churches have been custodians of uh, such religious objects um, for, for, for centuries, I mean, since the introduction of Christianity to Ethiopia in the 330 AD. That's about 300 uh, years after the birth of Christ. And therefore that, the will is there, the capacity is there, yeah. um, the capability is also there, and therefore that this should not be an argument at all for not responding positively to the demand by the people of Ethiopia, because they can take care of it. Have you been in touch with the Foreign Office here in London uh, about uh, this claim? Because it's obviously wider than the V&A and it extends to the British Museum and the British Library. So what contacts have you had with the uh, Foreign Office uh, about uh, this uh, demand or request? I hope that the two governments will, um, as I said down the road, begin to talk about these things, not only government to government, but institution to institution and people in Britain who, who really support the idea of returning the objects, the Magdala objects and other objects, really. So there is quite a lot of understanding among the British public. And therefore, that government to government um, talks, negotiations, all I hope continue in the future as well. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. That's very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, the Glasgow International Festival of Contemporary Art is into its eighth edition and opens to the public today. As ever, it's a reflection both of the long-thriving scene in the Scottish city and of its standing as a magnet for international artists. Richard Parry has taken over from Sarah McCrory as GI's director and joins me on the line now. Richard, tell me, this is your first Glasgow International. Can you tell me a bit about how you're taking it on? Well, uh, yeah, that's right. I arrived here in May last year, so um, we had kind of less than a year to put it together. Uh, And in fact, I would say the sort of bones of the programme were um, 
fleshed out. That's not too weird a mixed metaphor um, <laughs> over the course of about four months uh, uh, between sort of June when I really got going and, and October when we uh, announced sort of most of the most of the program. Um, I mean, the thing, one of the things that's always struck me about GI uh, that's very special um, about it is um, that it has this amazing format of, on the one hand, uh, you have a kind of set of core commissions, uh, which is known as the director's program. And then on the other hand, um, you have this wider program, which is effectively comprised of um, uh, open submission. Uh, and we we give some funds, some modest uh, sort of seed funding to projects as well. But it means that you get a very uh, sort of ground up picture of what artists and curators are uh, really interested in kind of thinking and feeling right now. Um, and I think one of the things that really struck me when I arrived uh, was um, the fact that the la- when the last festival took place in April 2016, uh, the world was, in many respects, a completely different place, you know, yeah. before Brexit, before Trump. Um, and, you know, I think there's a real turn that's happened since then. Um, and, uh, and artists and curators are really grappling with that. Um, and I feel that there's a sort of maybe new voices coming through. Um, and so part of my approach in a sense has been trying to kind of listen to that and, uh, and sort of build a program which uh, feels hopefully resonant with the city and, and engaged with uh, events that are happening right now. One of the striking things is that both you and the previous uh, director, Sarah McCrory, are not from Glasgow. And I wonder, is this a sort of deliberate choice in a sense to bring outside influences into the city? I mean, it's already a very international kind of art scene in Glasgow anyway, but, but it's, it, it's, it doesn't seem like it can be coincidental that two, two directors in a row are not from Glasgow. I mean, it's, I don't know if there's anything kind of deliberate about that. I think... Um, uh, you know, the festival, the first two iterations of the festival were both done by people who were very connected with the city of Glasgow, so Francis McKee and Katrina Brown. Um, and uh, and each director, I think, has brought something really important to the festival. Uh, I mean, from my side, prior to this, I was based in Blackpool and, of course, Glasgow, not too far away, the connection between those two places. And... Um, and I think for me, GI was always a really important point on the calendar to go and discover what what artists are, are and curators are, are up to. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's a hard one for me to answer that, really. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I think, <laughs> uh, but I'm just very pleased to be here doing it. Tell me about where GI fits into the ecosystem of Glasgow, if you like, because obviously it's a very established scene there. It's very close knit. Um, It's a real artistic community. Where does GI fit in? Is there a sort of element of disruption? Is it does it harness that scene? Tell me about how it how it works. Uh, uh, Maybe it does a bit of both of those things. I mean, the, the sort of real privilege from my side is it is one of those roles in which you do get to kind of uh, work with, collaborate, meet so many artists and practitioners across the city. And I think it does provide this this kind of moment in the sort of artistic rhythm of the city uh, where, you know, when it is a festival, uh, there is a kind of sense of, uh, of pulling together of people uh, perhaps showing uh, their best stuff or, or, or doing something more ambitious than they might otherwise uh, be, be able to do. Um, and... And I think that's very special. And I really do feel that there is 
involvement across the city in it, um, for sure. Can you tell me more about the point that you made earlier that you were saying that there's a very much a post-Brexit, post-Trump feel about the festival this time? Well, I, I mean, I think that's probably, you know, that's not just specific to Glasgow, but I think it's just very noticeable that the last festival in April 2016 really was right before kind of Brexit took place. Um, and of course, we've had Trump since then as well. And I, and I feel that everybody really is sort of grappling with um, some of the big things that have come out of that. And and it is it is noticeable, I think, that, uh, that there are uh, key themes that are really coming through. And I, I mean, I don't know if it's in response to that or, or whatever, but, but I think that there is, it is noticeable um, around identity, around kind of questions of non-binary. There's a big kind of science fiction drive, I think. And, you know, I'm very struck certainly by the fact that a lot of kind of polit- political events, reality, if you like, are, has, it seems stranger than science fiction. In, in many respects, or, or perhaps even more scary, <laughs> I'm not sure. But um, but but I don't think I think it'd be weird if these things didn't kind of find their way into the program. Is there is there anything that you could sort of class as direct activism reflected in in any of the work that's being produced? Um, I think that it's a very complicated question. Sometimes the line between art and activism, but I think that actually when people are making a point, if you like, I, I always feel like it's in many respects, the the sort of formal qualities of the work or the consideration as uh, a kind of artistic practice that comes first. Um, so, for instance, you could look at Hardeep Pandal's uh, new installation uh, over two floors in Kelvin Hall, which is saying a lot of very powerful things and asking a lot of powerful questions around I mean, tuition fees, uh, around kind of, um, I guess, race relations, things like that. Um, but it's not done, it's done in a very... Uh, sort of nuanced, complex uh, way. It's not sort of um, holding back, but it's also sort of not, um, and it, you know, it is upfront, it's direct, but at the same time, it's not sort of hectoring, I don't think. Uh, it leaves you room, uh, room as a viewer to, to sort of, um, to take it on your own terms. Um, but as I say, it's also not, it's not pulling any punches. And And there's also a sense just looking down the sort of list of artists that feature that we're looking at artists that are very well established big international names people like Mark Leckie's I I always think of mm. as probably the most influential British artist working right now and then on the other hand there are artists that are showing in Glasgow for the first time young artists etc yeah like Letty Jane for instance you know who's an artist that hasn't shown um, a great deal uh, in the UK let alone Scotland um, and I think it was important to get a kind of uh, if you like a sort of hybridity of voices, if that's the right way of putting it, um, but to get lots of different perspectives and to work with artists at different points in their career. I mean, I think that something like GI, um, it's it's only on for three weeks, but it does give artists that opportunity, I think, to take risks. Uh, and that's as true for somebody like Lebane Himid, who's made a work that's really quite unlike anything else that, that she's done. Um, and uh, Or whether that's kind of, uh, some of the younger artists like E. Jane or Hardeep um, to push the boat out a little as well um, for them. So, yeah. You must have been delighted when uh, Libano won the Turner Prize last year because I presume you programmed and you began working with her before the Turner Prize was awarded. But it's a great high profile moment to have something by her there. Well, I was really delighted on a number of fronts uh, for Libano. When I was based in Blackpool, she was actually uh, on our sort of advisory group for the for the for the gallery for the Grundy, 
uh, in fact, I think she was the first person we invited. Um, and she very busy, but she gave up a couple of years to do that. Um, and um, and then it was only towards the end of my time there that I, I sort of said, well, you know, it's been great working with you, Lebena, but actually I haven't, I haven't really done a studio visit. It'd be really nice to go and meet and talk about your work. And so we did that. And I think it was about a week later, it was announced that um, she was nominated for the Turner Prize and everything kind of went whoosh and, and it all sort of kicked off. And we sort of felt very lucky that we'd sort of been able to get in there and, and, and start thinking about a commission for Glasgow. Uh, but yeah, the timing was great on that front. And it, and it also gave us, it gave, gave us, I think, a nice boost at that point in the year, um, looking, ahead to, looking ahead to now. Tell me about the three-week d- duration, because one imagines because it's three weeks, as you say, artists take risk, but they're also thinking in terms of that time, and therefore time-based elements play a factor in the kinds of work that they make. Tell me how that duration affects the kind of work that they make. I think that because the festival is three weeks, it means that there's greater opportunity to do things like performance, um, uh, and we have uh, for instance, like Taishani doing performances open, over the opening uh, weekend, and then and then audio. But uh, and I think it gives because it's only three weeks. It does give people the opportunity to um, look at performance, for instance, to do things that have a kind of durational quality in a way that I think might be harder if it was longer. Um, and yeah, and I think it does give that character. There's quite a lot of events this this this. Yeah, I mean, for instance, there's a group of young artists called Love Unlimited who are doing a series of events in a, a, and kind of an exhibition in a swimming pool in the far sort of far east, if you like, of the city. Um, and yeah, and I think that that character is very important. Fantastic. Thank you so much. No worries, Ben. Thanks so much. Glasgow International runs until the 7th of May. And that's all for this week. Do subscribe if you don't already and tell us what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper. And you can follow our Instagram feed at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks for listening and see you next week.